Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we had a chat with Tom Statton, PhD researcher at Reading University, talking about insects and agroforestry. Often in agroforestry, we talk about, or in tree planting, we talk about the ecological benefits, and we wanted to find out more about how that works, how beneficial they really are, and is everything that is being said about agroforestry, um, is it showing up in the field as well? And we had a really interesting conversation with Tom uh, about this, who brings up some fascinating elements uh, in terms of management styles, understories in trees, types of insects that are favored and not favored, and more. So I hope you enjoy this interview and let us know what you think. Hello, Tom, and welcome on the podcast. Hello, Dimitri, and uh, thanks for the invitation. It's very nice to be here. Awesome. Well, um, I think uh, to, to start off, it would be really great for our listeners to have a bit of an idea of of, of who you are and um, what you're doing and uh, some of your current uh, activities at the moment. Sure, yeah. So um, I'm a PhD student um, in my fourth year now, so right at the end of my PhD. Um, I'm at the University of Reading in the UK, which is in southern England. Um, and really, I suppose, in terms of my background, um, my background is really in ecology and biology. Um, so I did a biology degree, then I did a master's in um, uh, biological recording and ecological monitoring. Then I worked as a consultant ecologist for a few years, um, advising developers and people like that. Um, then I fancied a change, so I, I started a PhD. Um, so really my background is in ecology and I'm interested in any applied ecological problem, really, um, of which... Uh, agriculture um there are there's lots to be uh, lots to be interested in there so that's how i got into this okay so my phd um, i'm looking at really looking at biodiversity and agroforestry um and particularly plants and insect diversity but i'm particularly interested in looking at that at that from an applied angle so from a farming perspective what are the good aspects of biodiversity in agroforestry so things like pollinators or the natural predators of pests. And also what are the challenging aspects, so things like weeds and insect pests. So it's trying to weigh up those pros and cons, really, of biodiversity and agroforestry. Okay, and how did you get involved with agroforestry in the first place? How did you start working in agroforestry research? Yeah, well, it was really coming to the PhD, um, and I, I was looking for PhD opportunities, um, and I saw saw this one advertised, um, and it looks like a, uh, a interesting topic, really. So it went from there. Um, but as I say, I, yeah, I'm interested in applied ecological problems. I like getting out into the field as well and getting my hands dirty and collecting data. Um, 
And so this project really ticked all those boxes in terms of being a very applied, practical project. Um, so yeah, that's how I got into it. Okay. Um, it was quite exciting to uh, find your research, actually, um, that was uh, advised to us by uh, Sally and Joe, um, who we interviewed in a previous episode. And um, for us, I mean, one of the objectives of this talk would be to really delve into the, the nuance of how agroforestry and under what conditions and with what management does it have an influence on our insects and therefore how that can influence also our the economics of the farm by, for example, favoring um, or defavoring predatory insects that can help with other types of, of pests, uh, such as aphids, etc. So, um, and I know your research touch up, touches a, a lot of, well, is based on this. So it would be awesome if you could give us a bit of an intro as to what you found out um, um, in your research about insects and agroforestry. How have insects been favored or defavored in an agroforestry context compared to an arable context? Yeah, so... Um... I mean, what you say about nuance earlier is is very true. And I think when I started out on the project, um, I was kind of seeing it in a quite polarised view and seeing, well, can agroforestry be a positive solution, not just for biodiversity, but for pest suppression and for pollinators. Um, whereas as I've gone through the project, I've realised that the reality is a bit more nuanced and there's there's pros and cons really, of biodiversity. Um, so I think, firstly, in terms of biodiversity overall, um, we're certainly finding strong evidence that agroforestry does improve biodiversity in terms of plants and insects, species, um, compared to monocultures of arable. Um, and that's, you know, as, as we would expect, really. Um, and there's previous evidence for that as well. So there's a growing body of evidence uh, supporting that conclusion. But in terms of the applied perspective, so looking at pests and uh, pollinators, um, we've really found that it's yeah it's quite a nuanced uh, result, really. So rather than agroforestry universally suppressing all insect pests, um, we're finding that some are suppressed, um, whereas others seem to be a bit more of a problem in agroforestry. Um, so, for example, uh, the pollen beetles um, in oilseed rape, we found um, way less of them in agroforestry. So 50%, 57% fewer pollen beetles in agroforestry compared to pure monocropping of oilseed rape. Um, so a huge difference. Um, whereas the flip side of that is something like slugs, where we found... 39% more slugs in agroforestry than in pure arable fields. Um, so it's a bit of a mixed bag, really, in terms of pest abundance. Um, and we can explain that in terms of uh, the, the traits of those insects. So pollen beetles are very mobile. They're very attracted to a big flower resource. And so a big field of oilseed rape is perfect for a pollen beetle because they can get in very quickly. There's loads of food for them. Um, and they have a very quick life cycle, so the high disturbance of the of the arable field doesn't really affect them. Um, whereas slugs are very different. Of course, they're not not mobile. Um, 
they're not particularly attracted to any particular resource. Um, and so they do quite well in agroforestry because, um, well, probably because of a number of reasons, including the refuge from cultivation and also the higher um, moisture stability in the soil. Um, the soils tend to retain more moisture in agroforestry. Um, yeah, so it's, it's quite a nuanced result. Um, but, but the other thing that we found was certainly higher diversity of natural enemies. So natural enemies are the predators and parasitoids of pests. Um, and we, we did find higher diversity um, of them in, in agroforestry than in arable, which suggests um, a higher level of natural pest control. Okay, so I, I saw on one of the, on your, I think it's your latest research paper, um, excuse me if I'm not familiar exactly with the, 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 the dates and the names, etc. but I found that you had seen an increase in ground predators um, in the in the agroforestry system, such as beetles, and I'm just trying, I'm, I'm just going to push the logic a bit and see to understand understand why things have worked or, what, or why things are working in this way and why not. But for example, if the ground beetles have been favoured and they eat slugs, would we expect at some point for the for things to even out? I mean, I don't know. Do we have a sense of how things could evolve uh, with this example now of this basic relationship between the beetles and the slugs? Yeah, I, th- I think in that in that respect, um, yeah, you're right about the um, the ground predators in in agroforestry. Um, agroforestry does seem to favour those, particularly those ground based predators. Um, but I think in terms of pest populations, pest populations depend on how many of those pests are being eaten, but also by how suitable the habitat is for those pests. Um, so it may be that there's more predators of slugs in agroforestry, but also if the habitat is so much better that it outweighs that top-down predation, then um, you'll end up with more slugs, which I suspect is what's what's happening in agroforestry. Um, there are more predators, um, but the habitat suitability for slugs out, outweighs that factor. Um, yeah, nice. And um, I mean, what about the um, insects such as pollination? I saw there was also some interesting results uh, in terms of pollinators in the system. Um, could you tell us a bit about that as well? Yeah, so yeah, that is a bit more a bit more simple, really, in that it is is pretty much universally beneficial effects um, of pollinators in agroforestry. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, we're writing a paper at the moment um, on that, and there was a paper that came out last year actually from a, a previous PhD student at Reading, um, and we're find, finding about um, two times more pollinators in agroforestry than in arable fieldwoods, basically, um, which is is a, is a big oh, effect. A lot, yeah. um, it's a lot, a lot more. Yeah, yeah, um, and not just numbers of pollinators, but also the species richness of particularly of wild bees. Um, so there's a lot more species of wild bees in agroforestry. Um, and interestingly, we've been looking at which species of bees particularly benefit. So is it just common bee species that you're getting more of, or is it favouring declining rarer species? Um, and it seems that it is those rarer declining species which are particularly benefiting from agroforestry. So it's species, particularly smaller winged species, 
um, are benefiting most from agroforestry. Um, and those smaller winged species are also more vulnerable to population declines um, because they're much less mobile, they're much more sensitive to um, localised habitat conditions. Um, so that's really promising in terms of agroforestry being a really effective tool for conserving wild bees, um, which is uh, is very important. I'm sure your listeners have heard lots about catastrophic insect declines globally, mm-hmm. um, and bees are certainly taking a big brunt of that um, in terms of uh, their vulnerability to, to extinction. So, um, yeah, agroforestry looks like a really good way of... Um, mitigating that and bringing bees back into farms which is of course good for conservation but also good for farming and pollination crop pollination and, and from my understanding or i had read this by looking at the resources in your in your research and kind of drilling in wild bees are i think it was research in china i'm not sure but they found that wild bees are, are more effective than normal bees or than 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 let's say cultivated bees it's not the right term but uh, at uh, at pollinating, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. There's lots of evidence for um, yeah comparing um, managed bees like honeybees. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in the UK we normally have um, managed honeybee hives um, around the edges of crop fields to pollinate the crops. Um, so there've been studies looking at how effective wild pollinators are compared to honeybees, and there's lots of evidence that um, yeah having those wild pollinators really helps to improve pollination. Um, so there was one study that came out recently that looked at, that compared the weight of strawberries pollinated by honeybees versus wild mm. bees. And they found that the strawberries pollinated by wild bees were significantly heavier than those that had been pollinated by honeybees. Wow, um, I mean, I, so, I really yeah. wonder why would that be the case, right? I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's lots of reasons for that, but I, I really having a good diversity of different um, bee shapes and sizes, um, so the pollen can get into different places. Um, is it seems to be important, uh, whereas honeybees are quite limited in terms of where they take the pollen and how they move it around, basically. And so, can we assume that that's the case with? other species as well? Because, I mean, I, I guess flying insects like bees can be, maybe it was you specifically studied these ones, but can we assume that the, the complexity of other uh, insect groups will also be emphasized and their importance in the ecosystem can also, well, is also an important consideration in agroforestry yeah. vs, uh, you know, more simple monocrop fields without the complex Abs- layers? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lots of interest in that in the moment in, in the ecological research, um, looking at the importance of diversity for um for pollination, as I've mentioned, but also for natural pest regulation. Um and so there was a study that looked at um what we call the functional diversity of predators and parasitoids, which is basically the number of different types of predators that you have. Um, so it's, it looks at uh, the, the hunting mode of predators, so whether they're ambush predators or whether they, they're active or whether they sit, sit and wait, um, and also whether they're, which parts of the plants they use, so whether they run along the ground or whether they're aerial, um, and things like this looked at this 
functional diversity and found that um, the functional diversity of predators was the most important predictor of pest regulation or pest suppression um, and more important even than the number of different species of predators that you have. So having these not just different species of predators but different functions of predators um, is is really important um, for for this natural pest suppression. So yeah, it's it's really interesting um, to look at it from this functional biodiversity. And I mean, for me, it really asks. I mean, it makes me wonder um, what is it in the agroforestry system that favors this biodiversity? Is it the the more diverse food source, the more diverse you know structure of the environment that creates more habitat? Do we have an idea of what creates better conditions for accommodating higher biodiversity of insects? Yeah, so it's yeah, it's a good question, and there's again, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but really, introducing plant diversity um, into a field always benefits um, biodiversity in general, because of course, plants underpin the whole food web. Um, so you have more plant diversity, you have more insect diversity, um, and so agroforestry is a good way of doing that. Um, one one really <clears throat> Excuse me. One um, important factor uh, in terms of that plant diversity is, of course, how the the space below the trees is managed, particularly in, a, in an alley cropping system where you have strips of trees. Um, then that space is an opportunity, really, to provide a um, food source for for invertebrates and um, insects and other other wildlife. Um, and so one of the things we've looked at actually is to compare tall flowering understories, so the understory being the vegetation below the trees, compared to regularly mown understories to suppress the vegetation. Um, and we found mm-hmm. significantly higher diversity um, associated with those taller flowering understories, particularly early in the season. So it's, it seems that that vegetation is really important, particularly for overwintering of um, of insects, um, and particularly, interestingly, the main benefit of that um, was on the the beneficial insects, so the predators of pests and the pollinators. Whereas we didn't really see any worsening of pest problems um, from those taller flowering understories. So it seems that uh, that vegetation below the trees is is an important reason why agroforestry can be so beneficial to biodiversity. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, there's, that's one, one, one of your papers focuses solely on this, right? It's just looking at how mm-hmm. the management of that understory will influence the... Um, and and it's, it compares quite a lot to the, to the flower strips uh, that uh, we also talk a lot about. This is a bit diverging a bit from agroforestry, but that's also an important conservation technique that we're seeing mm-hmm. uh, popping up around the place. Um, and so I wonder what... I mean, what's... Just, just stepping back um, a, a little bit, um, what's the benefit of... A flower strip, yes, a flower strip with trees, also called, you know, agroforestry. But <laughs> what's, yeah. the, what, what's the difference there? I mean, what's the do the trees have an influence? Well, the trees will have a micro, microclimatic influence. Um, so there's there's good evidence again that um, the trees produce wind speeds in the in the crop alleys in between the trees, um, 
and that will have an effect on on flying insects. So again, thinking of things like bees, um, especially the smaller bees are quite sensitive to wind speeds. So reducing wind speeds by introducing trees will be beneficial to them. Um, so that's that's probably the main um, kind of mechanism by which the trees will benefit biodiversity. But of course, the other um, kind of a side of biodiversity, the reason trees are planted is for economic benefit. Um, and that's really important because, you know, wildlife friendly farming techniques need to work economically. Um, and the, the disadvantage with having flower strips is that they're not providing you with an income, a direct income, that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a limit to how many flower strips a farmer is going to plant, and they're not probably not going to plant them across their field every 24 metres. Whereas in agroforestry, that's exactly what farmers do because they're receiving an income from those trees. So the trees are providing an economic justification to have a high density of these um, flower strips across a field and also um, a justification for uh, keeping them there for in the long term. Okay, yeah, that makes... Um, that makes a lot of sense. But again, just le- if I can drill this in a bit more, is, is there not some role for the tree in the direct benefits in terms of food and, and, and shelter to the insect? Yes, there is. There is absolutely, yeah. And that's, it's probably a slightly neglected um, kind of topic in ecological research. Um, in fact, there was a paper that came up very recently um, on bees, looking at the importance of trees for bees. Um, and it found that, uh, yeah, things like tree sap um, and resin uh, are actually really important for bees because they use them mm. to build their nests, um, which we don't really think about. Um, we just think about having lots of flowers for bees, but actually they do need um, these other other sources of food like resin and um, sap. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and the, yeah, of course, the same goes for other insects. Um, they'll use these uh, these resources available on trees, and and the flowering, as you say, uh, many trees are very early flowering. For example, apple trees, which um, are the, the main tree species we've been studying in our agroforestry field sites, um, flower very early and provide a, a really abundant uh, floral resource early in the season. And that's, that's, again, there's good evidence that having that temporal availability of um, food sources is really important for, for bees because when, when they come out of hibernation, they need to, um, or they emerge from their nests, they need an immediate source of food, really. So having early flowering and also late flowering um, species is, is really important for their populations. I mean, maybe it's a good time now and maybe it's also... Um a bit late, but for us, it would be great for you to mention um, kind of the setup of the plot where you were measuring data. Um, just to clarify, are we talking about, you know, a hedge system? Are we talking about what agroforest system are we talking about? Where have you done your measures? Yeah, so we selected um, three three sites, all in um, the UK, all in a similar part of the UK. So they were, they were quite, quite climatically similar. Mm-hmm. Um and all of the three sites are working farms, so they're all commercial farms. They're not um, kind of university setups. Um, 
and each of the farms has an agroforestry field as well as a um, monoculture arable field within the same management um, and in most cases right next door to each other so we're able to compare um, and really the whole aim of the research was to compare the agroforestry fields to the arable fields mm-hmm. um, and yeah in terms of the agroforestry setups um, they were uh, so they're alley cropping systems so it's a row of trees or a strip of trees um, then you have a crop alley uh, which was 24 meters wide at all of the all of the sites and then another row of trees another crop alley so on um, so the tree rows were um, mostly apple trees um, one of the sites was a bit more diverse and uh, more of a range of um, fruit and nut species um, but mostly apples um, and these are planted on um, semi-dwarf fruit stock so they get about uh, three or four meters tall so the the shading impact on the crop isn't isn't too severe compared to bigger timber trees um, and the tree rows the tree rows are set within a three or four meter wide strip um, and then that the the space below the trees the understory was sown with a um, some kind of flower mix at all of the sites um, and that varied from a nectar-rich, um, quite diverse wildflower mix at some of the sites um, through to a, a clover mix at one of the sites. Um, and what else? So the trees were um, the trees were planted, uh, well, at the time we were collecting the data, the trees were about between uh, three and eight or nine years old, something like that, depending on the site. Um, so, so reasonably, reasonably young, really, in terms of mm-hmm. the establishment time. Um, and, and two of the sites were organically managed. Um, the other one wasn't organic, but they, they, they do limit their pesticide use, um, and also, uh, min till. Um, so they're all kind of practicing some kind of ecological farming technique alongside the agroforestry. For me, it uh, it makes me think. Uh, it makes me wonder a bit about, you know, we looked at, we talked about increased um, biodiversity. Uh, we talked about increased um, predators, especially early in the season, which is mm-hmm. when you know there is also a lot of pressure from um, from um, herbivorous insects like aphids, etc. Mm-hmm. Did this increased biodiversity express itself in a in in um, um, an improvement in the crop performance, be it either the apple or the intercrop grains, for example? Um, so, yeah, f- firstly, before I, uh, yeah, before I answer that, yeah, the, the, I meant to say the crops in the agroforestry systems were um, mostly cereals. Mm-hmm. So we had um, mostly oats, actually. Uh, there was a bit of barley and wheat. One of the sites grew oilseed rape in, in one of the years. Um, so they were all cereal-based rotations. Um, yeah. So in terms of benefits to the crop, um, in terms of, well, in terms of the different understory treatments, we compared aphid colonies in the apple trees above the flowering mix versus the mown understories, um, and we found significantly fewer aphids in the apple trees mm. above the understories which had been regularly mown, 
and also significantly more natural enemies early in the season in the trees. Um, by natural enemies, I mean I mean predators and, and parasitoids. Um, so there was a nice a nice link there between the higher abundance of, of predators and suppressed aphid colonies um, associated with those flower strips. Um, and we also followed that through to the apple crop, and we found again significantly fewer aphid damaged apples um, above the flowering understories. Um, so there was a, an observable effect on the on the apple crop. So it was ni- quite nice to be able to follow that through from predators. Mm, very interesting. More predators, fewer pests, and fewer fewer pest damage. Um, but in terms of yeah, in terms of a comparison between agroforestry and monoculture arable, um, I, the, the problem was there wasn't really significant enough pest build up anywhere to to see any observable crop damage. Um, so we weren't able to kind of measure crop damage because there wasn't wasn't enough of it um, from pests. Um, but really, I, in terms of the value of, of having natural enemies, um, because it, in a way it's a bit of a tough sell, um, having, trying to promote naturally occurring predators on farms at the moment because pesticides are so cheap and readily available and mostly effective. Um, so why would a farmer stop using pesticides and try to promote these naturally occurring predators um, when they have this reasonably reliable and cheap quick fix in terms of pesticides. Yeah. Um, and I think I mean, the answer to that is in really the long-term insurance value of having these natural predators, um, particularly in terms of uh, we look at the, the way pesticide regulation is going in recent years, um, particularly in Europe and the EU. It's getting tighter and tighter um, as we're becoming more aware of the environmental and, and human health risks associated with pesticides. Um, but also the evolution of pest resistance. Um, so we're having to continually develop new pesticide products as the insects find ways around them, basically, and find ways to, to tolerate them. And that will continue for as long as we're, we're using pesticides. Um, so it's really the value is, um, and, and of course, added to that climate change and um, shifting distributions of, of new pests, we could have new species arriving in areas where we didn't find them before. Yeah. Um, so having a good diversity of predators um, is really important to have that insurance and that resilience against future risks. Um, and that's where the value is, which is a bit of a tough sell because you're talking about a slightly intangible long-term benefit um, rather than a, you know, a short-term quick fix. Um, but yeah, that's that's where we where we see the value. Um, and yeah, I'm not completely against pesticides, but um, the more tools we have in our toolkit to um, protect our, our crops and our food production from pests um, can only be a good thing. No, that completely uh, makes sense to me and resonates uh, with me. I was just recently working in Switzerland where um, they are going to vote, I think on the 12th of June, 
um, the population is going to vote in a referendum style um, to um, to ban um, basically. Um, if I'm not uh, if I'm not wrong, it's all pesticide synthetic uh, pesticide wow. um, uh, uses in agriculture. Uh, so I think it's insecticides, herbicides. Uh, yeah, it's 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 they're going to ban a lot of the chemical tools that the farmers have, and the farmers are lobbying quite heavily to not to not let that happen because it is quite extreme to just take away yeah. all these tools from the farmers, and there are some serious side effects of that, uh, which go beyond ecology, which go in you know basically what's I mean, I mean that's another conversation, <laughs> but um, <laughs> the point is that um, there's pressure. Uh, more and more pressure from citizens, from uh, politicians, and etc., to get rid of these uh, of these tools that farmers currently have, and so we have to find alternatives. But I, I really like to connect that with what you said earlier on. Of um, you know, well, if you're going to put if flower strips benefit trees, uh, benefit insects, and benefit the resilience of your system and the strength of your ecosystem, um, then being able to make some kind of money from that. Uh, from that strip by using agroforestry and um, you know a lot of our interviews are, are based on this on interview practitioners and look at how they are how their economic model works um, you know how can people put trees on their landscapes and make it make it profitable for them um, and uh, actually we interviewed Stephen Briggs on this that was you may have done research on his farm I'm not sure yes but uh, yes. Yeah. so it's interesting actually to connect your research with his uh, with the conversation with him because you know he was very happy with apples as you said you know low shade um, and um, apples that uh, produce uh, an income quite quickly and that can be value uh, can be transformed and and can uh, gain value very well so um, that's I think that's a, a really interesting way to to merge, um, you know, the productive um, uh, needs of the farm with the ecological requirements of our ecosystem and now of society as well. Um, yeah, so that's my little rant. But now I'm going to start interviewing you again. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah, and it, it has to be. Um, it has to work ecologically and e- economically. Um, yeah, that's that's. No, both are, both are very important, um, and we have been looking at the economics of agroforestry, particularly of intercropping apples with cereals. Um, we've been we've been looking at that as well. So yeah, I'd be happy to talk more about that. Yeah, that it's. I think it's a great moment. Uh, I'm I'm curious what um, results did you find when looking at the economics? How was? Uh, could you break that down a little for us? Yeah. So we. Firstly, we did um, quite a theoretical exercise. So we um, basically came up with 18 uh, theoretical farms, um, all of which had an agroforestry field and an arable field. And the question was really, is the agroforestry more profitable than arable? And if so, at what point does agroforestry, after how many years, does agroforestry become more profitable than the business-as-usual arable system. Um, And the agroforestry, as I say, was intercropping apples with cereals um, with 24-metre-wide alleys, so so basically Stephen Briggs's system. Mm -hmm. Um, And of those, so we tested 18 scenarios based on uh, whether they were organic or conventional management and also looking at different productivity levels of the apples and the arable crops. Um, so we combined different productivity levels of each in each of organic and conventional systems. 
And we found that of the 18 scenarios, um, 15 of those, uh, in 15 of those, agroforestry was more profitable than arable within 20 years. Um, and we chose 20 years because that's about the productive lifespan of apple trees on these rootstocks. Um, so in most cases, uh, agroforestry was more profitable eventually. But the next question was, well, how many years does a farmer have to wait to see that profitability compared mm -hmm. to um, business as usual farming? Um, and that was seven, seven, between seven and 12 years. Um, it became more profitable to farm uh, using this agroforestry system rather than monoculture arable. Um, so there's quite a substantial period um, a farmer has to wait to see that profitability come to come to fruition, really. Um, mm -hmm. And this is, of course, I should say, this is assuming that there's no grants. So it's assuming the farmer doesn't receive any grant to plant the trees um, okay. and doesn't receive any you know, stewardship support from the government or anything. So it's just equal subsidies um, between the two systems. Yeah. So, um, yeah, after we tested the 18 theoretical scenarios, we then wanted to test that using real-world data. So um, Stephen Briggs, who you spoke to on a, on a previous episode, one of our one of the farmers at one of our study sites, um, he kindly shared with us some uh, yield and economic data. Um, so he shared with us the yields he was getting from the agroforestry and the arable fields, um, and also how much it cost him to set up. Um, and so we, we then tested the profitability of, um, of his system um, of the agroforestry versus arable. Um, and that confirms that the agroforestry was more profitable than arable, or at least we would expect it to be um, within, within 20 years. Um, so that was a nice confirmation, um, really, of um, our theoretical expectations. Okay. And I mean, when you, when you talk about a profitability that starts between seven and 12 years and then would last until, or would, 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 would exist until 20 years when the trees would need to be changed overall, have you managed to use some calculations such as, um, uh, the internal rate of return or, or, or calculations, you know, in, including the time value of money in order to see, is it more valuable after 20 years to invest in agroforestry rather than not? Than not. Yeah, yes, yeah. so we have been doing that. Okay. So we've been including um, including discount rates um, in our in our calculations. Um, and yeah, in, in all of those 15 of 18 scenarios I mentioned, um, the discounted rate of profitability, um, i.e. in discounting um, future profitability um, was higher from the agroforestry and arable. Um, so yeah, it, it is a, it does show that it's a, um, a worthwhile investment provided the apple trees. So in the, in the, I should say in the three scenarios, which weren't more profitable, um, all in all of them, the reason they weren't more profitable was because the apples, um, the apple production level was low. Um, so the apple yields were, were low. Um, and, the profitability of agroforestry never caught up with the arable. Okay, very interesting. I mean, uh, that that leads kind of nicely to the this is one of the questions that I wanted to, or one of the aspects that I wanted to to delve into with you is is looking at um, uh, the management regime of the um, 
of the the tree line. So looking in, in, in a bit more detail, it's clearly more beneficial for biodiversity um, and for predatory insects, etc., to leave the flower stripped or the the strip underneath the trees to leave to to have it planted as flowers and to leave them flower and to to not mow them. Um, uh, has your research showed that there are some concerns in terms of weeds, weed pressure for the 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 intercrop um, around these agroforestry lines? Yeah, so that's another interesting topic, and we haven't haven't really mentioned weeds yet. Um, but uh, so again, the the effects on weeds is again quite nuanced. It's similar to the effect we find on insect pests in that it's not it's not like agroforestry universally. Uh, suppresses weeds or that all weeds are more of a problem in agroforestry mm. it really depends on the weed um so we did also measure um weed uh cover in the agroforestry fields and compared them to the arable fields um and we found that um we found that the the effect of agroforestry on weeds um we can really characterize by whether they're perennial creepers or um, more annual seed spreading species. So for example, something like black grass, um, which is a very common weed in the UK anyway, um, is is an annual grass and it produces lots of seeds. And so arable fields are, we're basically creating black grass heaven by arable farming because they, they like disturbed ground so their seeds can get in and germinate. They grow very quickly, go to seed very quickly, um, and then spread. So um, the arable way of farming is, is kind of perfect for black grass. Whereas in agroforestry, um, it's more more broken up. There's uh, particularly have vegetation below the trees. They can't really get into that. Um, so we found we found that black grass levels certainly weren't any higher in agroforestry than in arable. Um, whereas something like a perennial creeping weed, like creeping thistle, okay. Um, if if they uh, can get a foothold in the tree rows, then they can become a problem because they, they they then creep out vegetatively into the crop alleys from the tree rows. So it's more more vegetative spread of weeds is is the challenge in agroforestry rather than uh, seeds coming in. Okay, because I mean the weed seeds. I mean, just to understand the logic, the weed seeds of the, you know, fast reproducing, flying type or, or easily dispersed weed seeds. I mean, they're there anyways. They're around, um, mm. right? That's kind of a, I'm trying to understand how that would happen. If they're already around, it's not necessarily going to be, a man, and if they're managed with the tillage and with um, maybe herbicides, etc., cetera, um, that's not necessarily what's going to be the problem. The problem is that we're creating channels throughout the land where perennial creeping weeds can establish themselves and expand out exactly yeah yeah okay yeah that's right yeah 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 so because of that the the management of the tree row understory is obviously becomes very important mm-hmm. in terms okay. of managing the weed problem in agroforestry okay tell, could you tell us more about that uh, so some of the implications uh, around the management yeah so um yeah i mean, I, I mentioned earlier a bit about the research we did on comparing unmown versus mown understories um and i mentioned the benefits of those unmown flowering understories for biodiversity um 
but in that, I, I wouldn't suggest that the the vegetation is never mown. So by unmown, we just mean let the flowers come up in the spring and summer. Mm. Um, but it still it will still need some management, even if that's just cutting once every year or two. Um, and I think really the management of the understory needs to be guided by site conditions. So something like creeping thistle, um, there's an optimal time to cut thistles so that it, it, it knocks them back when they're when their underground reserves are at their lowest, which I think is just before they come into flowering or something like that. Okay. Um, so if thistles are a particular problem on the farm, then um, the cutting should be timed to um, maximise that thistle control. Um, so whereas on another farm, if, if thistles aren't so much of a problem, then possibly the um, mowing regime, cutting regime could be could be relaxed a bit more. So it really needs to be guided by site conditions. I mean, I'd love to delve into how we can how we can manage this 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 practically manage this this understory. Uh, I mean, it's so important for biodiversity, and so we want to manage it carefully uh, mm. to balance it with the other, uh, you know, um, the other objectives of the farm. So. Yeah, and I think there are other there are other options for that. And I've mentioned these wildflower understories. Mm-hmm. Um, another option is, is to have a clover-based understory, um, and particularly if that can be regularly managed. Um, clovers are obviously quite uh, don't really mind being cut often, so they can be um, managed quite intensively, mm-hmm. um, and that also helps with nitrogen fixation, of course. Um, so yeah, having a, having a clover or some kind of legume understory is an option. Um, I mean, some, some farmers have experimented with growing horticultural crops in their understories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you had Ian Tolhurst, um, on one of your earlier episodes, who was talking about that. Yeah. Um, but that's another way of, um, receiving an, a, another income stream, um, from that understory. But again, that's... The, that's quite obviously quite a um, labor intensive option. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would work in certain contexts. Um, yeah, exactly. But I'm very yeah. glad that you listened to at least some of our episodes. That's very positive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I, I like what you were saying also about the clovers because that's actually a technique um, in, that they use in, in, tree, in tree culture, um, in fruit tree culture. It's called the. Uh, uh, living mulches and and mm-hmm. being able to find crops that can uh, tolerate mowing, even maybe tolerate some mulching from time to time and go through, mm-hmm. but also that do not compete too much with the tree by having you know shallower root systems by yeah. being more efficient mm-hmm. with water, maybe less dense root uh, um, 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 yeah root mat uh, like we would find with perennial grasses, which would be some of the most competitive. Um, and yeah. you know, managing them by mowing to keep them there—that's um, actually a technique that they're using in in fruit culture. So, if it can also benefit in the insects, that's that would be beneficial. But I would expect, though, that wild flowers, perennial flowers that would install themselves there, would be the most beneficial for insects. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I would expect that would be right um, because what you really want. For insects is, is a good diversity mm. in terms of different flower structures um so you want more open flowers things like daisies as well as the more uh kind of tubular flowers like 
the clovers and legumes. Um, so, so clovers tend to be really good for bumblebees because bumblebees have got long tongues um, and the, the nectar in the clover is um, quite inaccessible unless the bee has a long tongue in order to reach it. So they're great for bumblebees, but not great for things like hoverflies, which have really short tongues. Um, so yeah, I mean, clover run stories would, would certainly benefit bumblebees and, and some insects, but um, but generally the best is to have a good diversity. Um, I mean, the, the risk of having, of sowing a wildflower mix, um, and a big problem with that is that you, you end up with a really nice diverse flower mix within two or three years. But then after that, you, you see the competitive grasses, the coarse grasses starting to take over, um, particularly on the more fertile soils. Okay. Um, so that's that can be a challenge um, to to keep it at that the stage where you've got the nice diverse mix, um, and again, management is important for that. But that's a shared problem. If I can, if I can add just a little something else, that's a problem that you would see with mechanical uh, weeding, and that would also be a problem that you would see with chemical weeding. Some weeds would just some resistant weeds. For example, with the with the chemical one, and even with the mechanical one, not weeds, sorry, but grasses in this case, um, they would start settling in. So that would also be a problem that would need to be managed with other understory management regimes. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Nice. So in this case, um, for me, it's interesting to understand why would you mow it regularly like you did. I mean, you you did the experiment to see that you know the benefits in terms of insects with uh, letting it grow um, are, are, are clear from your research. But um, what about mowing it regularly? When, what kind of aspects did that benefit? Was it the competition with the trees? What, what was it? Yeah, I suppose competition with the trees. Also, perhaps weed suppression. Um, so, if, yeah, if, if um, yeah, regular mowing for certain weeds could be helpful. Um, but we also wanted to kind of have a bit of a proxy for completely bare ground. So in some agroforestry systems, um, I think it's more common really in continental Europe, um, they just have a bare strip below the trees, Mm -hmm. which is um, sometimes just herbicided and kept as bare ground. Um, So having the mown understory isn't isn't the same as that, but um, it's more similar to having a bare strip below the trees. Um, so we wanted to kind of be able to um, generalise our results a bit more to that, really. So there aren't necessarily a huge amount of, of benefits to having it mowed regularly. It's probably best to just let it, uh, to mow it maybe once or twice a year, but to let it go to flower, uh, let it benefit the system, especially in the spring, and then during the summer, mow it, let it go off. Is that Am I... Am I kind of yeah. uh, understanding correctly the, some of the recommendations you would give to manage the understory? Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in terms of benefits of the main understory, we didn't really find any. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there could be benefits in certain contexts um, if there were certain weed problems, um, but we didn't find any biodiversity benefits at all of having main understories. Um, so, yeah, what you said... Um, I would I would agree with you know, a relaxed management. Um, some management is is needed, um, but 
really keep it as low intensity as, as possible um, is best, really. And also, an, an important factor is not just having the flower cover, but having um, the vegetation structure over the winter. So it's ideally having some taller, tussocky vegetation um, left over winter, because that overwintering resource is really important for beneficial insects. Um, so try not to mow it too late in the year. Okay, very interesting. And then it would be left over winter with this kind of more 3D structure. And then it would be mowed just before the when spring kicks in, or would it just be left? And then the plants would kick would, would come up in, in, in spring and then be mowed before it goes to seed. Is that would that be the what would be the best option? Yeah, I, I suppose ideally um, it would be left over winter and then left through spring to come into flower um, and then mown later in the summer once or twice um, would be best. Um, that said, if it, if it was mown early in the spring, um, that, well, I really it's best to leave some some refuge really. So mm -hmm. something that some farmers do is to um, cut the outer parts of the the understory and leave the central bit. Mm -hmm. So immediately between the tree trunks, leave that a bit taller. Because um, of course, if you cut it all at the same time, um, then you completely obliterate this resource for insects and then that has quite a big impact. Mm. Um, so if some refuge can be left, um, when you do cut it or another way is to rotationally cut it so you could cut one row um, at one time and then another row at another time um, like that so um, leaving some kind of refuge at all times um, is the ideal way to uh, to do it what i find quite reassuring with this is that we're not talking about some very complex you know, man, some very complex systems to implement in order to favor biodiversity. I mean, we're here we're just talking about, you know, managing um, a tree understory. Um, and, and it's not necessarily super complex. There is the need to establish a certain crop. I mean, to establish a, a certain flower mix uh, or a certain clover mix or whatever the farmer decides and then to, to mow it a few times possibly. And then eventually after a few years if it's uh, if it turns too much to grasses to perennial grasses to be tilled in and started again um but it's not um it's something that farmers would would have the experience to to manage quite quite well um and so my question is is now to what extent can a farmer uh, reliably expect uh, to have the same results uh, as you have observed in these farms that you followed I mean, how confident can we be that, you know, if from my context in France, for example, or in Switzerland, or somebody else in, uh, I mean, let's try to stay in the kind of oceanic, VS, I mean, continental Europe, let's not go to Mediterranean now, but in this kind of, of, of area of Europe, um, how, can a farmer expect to just have the similar results? Does the literature show certain consistency? Um, yeah, so I, th I think there's two elements here. Firstly, there's the biodiversity element and then there's the pests and weeds more specific element um so i mean if we start with the biodiversity um I, yeah there's good evidence that agroforestry does quite consistently improve biodiversity compared to monoculture um and the strength of that effect will depend on the system design so like we've said 
understory management particularly also what trees you're planting diversity of trees the width of your crop alleys whether it's organic or conventional interesting is there's um, a recent study in france that found that um agroforestry systems that were conventionally managed with, pes- with pesticides the tree rows actually acted as a sink of um for beneficial insects rather than a source so um the, the organic agroforestry systems improved um, predators' diversity, um, but it actually had a negative effect on um, in the conventional systems um, mm. because you're basically spraying it all with pesticides and so the, the um, predators are all staying in the tree rows and not really moving out into the alleys. Mm, um, interesting. So that does, that does have a, a, big, a big impact. Um, and also landscape context is, is very important. So um, we found the strongest effects of biodiversity at, um, at Stephen Briggs's farm. And his farm is a very, uh, in a very intensive agricultural landscape. Um, so there's very few hedgerows and trees in the wider landscape. Um, so we think the reason for that is because the baseline situation is much lower. So there's arable fields. The biodiversity is, is quite poor because it's in such an intensive even though his farm is organic the surrounding landscape there's very little semi-natural habitat um, so by planting agroforestry or then there's then a bigger difference between the agroforestry and the arable whereas in a more diverse landscape where there's already good amounts of semi-natural habitats like hedgerows patches of woodland um, then by planting agroforestry, if you've already got quite a good diversity on the farm, then agroforestry isn't going to improve it as much, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Very um, interesting. Yeah. Again, it helps to nuance a bit the conversation to look at, you know, sometimes yeah. this may work, sometimes it may be opposite, as you've just mentioned right now, which, yeah. Is, yeah. which is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the other thing I, I would say on that is... Um, the effect on more specifically on pests and weeds. Um, I've mentioned that the results on that are quite nuanced, um, which is why we've tried to generalize the findings and we're, we're trying to say, well, pests which are less mobile and more uh, generalist um, and less attracted to a specific arable resource like slugs are probably more of a problem in agroforestry as are perennial creeping weeds. Whereas much more mobile pests, which are attracted really attracted on mass to a arable resource like a pollen beetle or a cabbage stem flea beetle um are are likely to be more of a problem in monoculture arable um so the effect that a farm will will see on pests and weeds will really depend on what pest and weed problems they have um and if if you know their concern is things like black grass and cabbage stem flea beetle then agroforestry is likely to be beneficial for um, helping to control that. Um, whereas if it's you know, slugs and thistles are the main problem, then um, agroforestry will, will provide some challenges. Have you uh, found some significant, significant effect of the, on one hand, 
the, the proximity of the agroforestry line. So between, you know, 20 to 50 meters, for example, uh, as, as well as the width of the agroforestry tree line, uh, such as, you know, it's Stephen Briggs, it's three meters wide. Uh, some other forest systems, it can be as, as small as one meter wide. Um, are these also significative in, in looking at uh, biodiversity and predator populations? Yeah, so um, it's, it's a tricky one because we haven't, nobody's really tested it specifically. Um, but we have looked at spatial patterns of biodiversity across the alley. And actually, there's, there's very few strong patterns, um, which is quite surprising. Mm. So in other words, the, the species that we're finding and the abundance of those species in the centre of the crop alleys is quite similar to the edge of the alleys. So there's quite a big spiller over effect. It does, de- the diversity of species does decline slightly okay. um, into the centre of the alley, but it's, it's quite a small effect. Um, and this is in 24 metre wide alleys. Um, so the tree rows do seem to have a big spillover. Um, so, I mean, my, my expectation on that would be that um, if we say, 50 meter alley which is twice as wide as the width that we we studied um that the, the diversity probably wouldn't be radically different to um what we find in the 24 meter wide alleys okay. based on the, the patterns that we've observed um and yeah ultimately i would, I would very strongly expect a 50 meter wide alley to be much more similar to a 24 meter wide alley than it would be to a pure arable field. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in other words, introducing diversity into your arable field you know, will be a good thing. Um, obviously, the more the more the better, but um, it doesn't seem that uh, the spacing of the tree rows is, is having a huge effect. Um, and probably other things like the management of the understory that we've been talking about is a more important factor, I would expect anyway. I mean, it'd be amazing if you could give us a sense of where's the research at looking at biodiversity and agroforestry. Are we, are we at a place where we can be very confident about, you know, making these, um, making models and making, you know, strong principles um, based on the research we've managed to, to, to do? Or are we still at a kind of an immature stage? Could, could you give us, maybe us and our listeners a, um, a sense of, of where research is at and what are some of the biggest problems in research? And by, by problems, I just want to elaborate quickly on this. It, you know, for me, when I look at some of the research um, um, out there in agroecology or in agriculture, that uh, many times it's on very small plots um, and it can be quite difficult to look at the bigger patterns um, happening around. And actually, there was, I was studying a French agronomist that was showing that when they started doing similar studies, but on a much bigger plots, and by big, bigger plots, they were looking at two passages on, uh, with a sprayer uh, for the whole length of the field. So they were looking at sometimes one hectare at a time, vs one hectare next to that. Uh, and they started to see completely different patterns. Uh, and that's, for reference, that's Francis Boucay, who's just uh, took, taken out a book um, um, that's really, really interesting. Um, it's in French though, uh, but he's, uh, he's got some interesting, um, uh, thoughts and, uh, he's done some interesting research on that. So, I, I mean, looking at kind of being critical and self-critical as well of, as, uh, of research, uh, it would be, it would be great, great to delve a bit into that. 
Yeah, it's, it's a really important point, actually. Um, and yeah, I mean, the challenge with agroforestry is we want it to be at real, we want to study it at realistic scales, but we also want enough replication that we can be confident in the results. Um, and it's very, very difficult to achieve both. So some studies of agroforestry have looked at plot scale agroforestry and then have had lots of replicates. So the results are quite then quite robust, but they're also perhaps not necessarily realistic of field conditions. Um, whereas something like my study, um, I've been looking at working farms, field scale farms. Um, and so it's realistic of field scale working farm conditions, but I've only got three sites. Um, and really to have a really high degree of confidence in the results, most ecology studies try to use kind of 15 or 20 sites at least. If, if, if we were looking at something like flower strips, for example, um, but the, you know, the sites just aren't available at the moment in terms of looking at agroforestry. So it does need to be tested more. Um, and, um, but there are also where we're finding consistent results among sites, then we can be reasonably confident. Also, and also if there's a mechanism to explain that result, then we can reason, be reasonably confident that that's you know, a reliable result. Um, so I think, and in terms of future research, something that I, I think is important is to look at this, um, look at things like predation rates of pests um, and um, crop damage by pests, um, which I mentioned a little bit about in terms of the apples above the flower strips. But it'll be interesting to look at agroforestry and to look at whether predation rates of pests are higher in agroforestry than monocultures um, and whether crop damage can be reduced uh, in agroforestry. Very interesting. Okay, well, thank you so much, Tom, and uh, for uh, uh, the first introduction to biodiversity and agroforest systems on the podcast. So thanks a lot for taking the time. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So thank you so much for making it this far. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. This was definitely a very interesting interview, delving into the details of agroforestry, which we hope we'll be doing more in the future with other researchers. Let us know if there are some specific topics or researchers that you want us to get into, and we can find out more about it, and we can try to organize an interview. Also, we are doing the podcast on the side of our jobs, and we are funding everything ourselves, so please consider donating uh, on our website, it's very easy to do. Any small amount will help for us to keep going with this podcast. So thank you very much and see you next time.